Welcome to African Women in Dialogue. I'm Lebo Hangmasang. Thank you for listening. We are here today to fulfill a necessary mission, to document our stories in our voices for future generations. We will not be forgotten. Our names will echo loudly through the corridors of history. All the women who came before us and the brave ones yet to come who dare to confront patriarchy, violence and inequality in fearless declaration. Who stand brave and unmoving to reclaim what colonialism tried to violate and shame. Our joy, our dignity, our humanity. If any of our African sisters are still in chains, then how can we ever claim to truly be free? Dumelang to all of our listeners today as we speak to a remarkable woman from South Africa. Welcome to African Women in Dialogue, where our esteemed guests share their journey, their joys, and their story in their voice. Dumela Dr. Bev Balesa Dizi. A belated happy birthday as well. How are you today? Thank you so much, Dumela Manes. I am well. Um, just I think the body took a bit of a knock with the birthday last week. It was the big 5-0 and sometimes we forget that uh, we are getting older and we shouldn't overdo things. <laughs> but I had such a good time. Oh, that is lovely. Yeah, um, I saw the photographs and it looked really like such a special and spectacular evening. Um, it was. So, yeah, so um, for those who don't know much about South Africa, Dr. Bev, can you describe your country to us and what you love most about it? Wow, you know, I've never been asked that question before. Um, <laughs> South Africa is a very interesting country. Um, geographically, I mean, obviously the name itself is a geographic location. It's in the southern tip of Africa um, with um, so many different cultures and languages. I think we have 11 official, but there's, I think, a few more. And um, it's a melting pot of cultures and nationalities. We come from a history of subjugation and oppression, which was called apartheid, um, where, you know, the minor white minority literally ruled over a black majority in our own continent. And um, having come through that, we are still, I think, navigating and finding ourselves as a nation, trying to find our own sense of, of national pride. Um, and so a lot of us are still going through the motions of finding a sense of self. Um, but I love my country. I, we have such beautiful people, um, you know, from just how we culturally relate to one another, to the... Just the fact that we live side by side with our former oppressors as though nothing had happened for me is a testament to how wonderful we are as a people, to be honest with you. Um, because honestly, so much more could have happened, so much more in terms of violence, of course, so much should have happened. Um, but yeah, we are really, really a beautiful people. Um, and our cultures are so vibrant and so deep and spiritual and and whew, let's not talk the physical beauty of the country right like just the landscapes oh my goodness we are a really beautiful people and a beautiful country so that's one of the reasons i haven't lived anywhere else i can visit for years in other places but 
this will always be home for me. Oh, mm-hmm. I feel you, Dr. Bev. There's certainly mm-hmm. no place like home. Uh, and there's mm-hmm. something so beautiful about our triumphant spirits and the way we keep journeying on uh, mm-hmm. the difficulty that faces us almost every single day. Um, so I certainly agree with you. Dr. Bev, you're an award-winning documentary director, writer, and consultant, an acclaimed activist and actress, one of the founders of GLOW, the gay and lesbian organization of Vidwatashrand, one of the organizers of the very first Pride March in South Africa. These are some of the accomplishments that mark your life of service. In 2019, you were awarded a Doctorate of Humane Letters by Claremont Graduate University for your immense contribution for the advocacy of the human rights of queer people in South Africa. As you looked out into the audience that day and heard your achievements being recounted one after the other, what do you remember thinking and feeling in that moment? Yeah, that was a trip. <laughs> um, that was, that was whew, it's so layered, that moment for me. I was deeply sad that it had to take the United States of America to see me. I'm not, I don't, I'm not seen very much in my own country. And it's very interesting that it's even in the queer spaces where you would think that this is where I'd be seen, where I'm not. I, you know, I, it's astounding to me um, to not be seen in your own spaces. So that was a bit sad for me. But at the same time, I was ecstatic. I mean, I I remember looking around thinking, I am in the USA, so of course, you know, the magnitude of this is kind of lost on a lot of people. But for me, it really, it, it was testament to the work that I've done, the work that even I have started taking for granted. It's very interesting when you're not seen, you start devaluing your own work. Mm. When, when, when you're not acknowledged, you devalue your own work, you know. And I, I had started devaluing myself for so many years until that moment. So the, the, the magnitude, it was huge. It was really huge. Um, there is one thing, though, that was really very clear to me. I was undoing all the voices that have told me that my work is not very significant. Mm -hmm. I I stood there listening to all of this going, "Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I did that, didn't I? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did that. It felt like somebody was was talking about somebody else, and I had to, with every single sentence, I had to circle back to, yes, this we're talking about me. Yes, this is me. Yes, this is me. Which is very interesting because obviously I'd been told over and over and over again, and I started believing that I, 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 my work was of no value. It's, it's a very interesting thing that, I mean, as an activist, also you don't want to to have a big head and to think that you know you are a savior. This is not the reason why we activist. We activist for the work, not for our own personal gratification. You know, you don't, we don't do this work so that we can get awards. We don't do this work so that we can get rich or famous. Those who do, then they're not about the work. 
their motives are different. My motive in this work has always been about humanity. Um, and so it's not like I've been going around looking for awards, but it's nice to be acknowledged. Certainly. And, you know, Dr. Bev, you, you just mentioned something profound. I mean, if you're saying that in 2019, when you were receiving this incredible accolade, this doctorate um, in the United um, States of America, as this moment is happening in 2019, and you recently celebrated your 50th birthday now in 2021, that means that perhaps you were living with these voices that um, led you to devalue your work until quite recently, you know? So in terms mm-hmm. of your life's journey, what kept pushing you to reach this moment? And when you think about it, what are the things that you are leaving behind and what are you taking with you into the future? I think more than anything, it's, you know, leaving the self-doubt behind. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I, I know that I am not the only activist who has these questions about themselves. And really, the, 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 it's, it's profound how we manage to, our, our own selves, how we devalue ourselves and, and put everyone else and everything else ahead of us. Um, above our own needs. Um, and it is, it is an, I, I noticed it among other feminist activists, is that, and, and in feminism, we speak of not putting yourself above the movement. So we, we speak of collective efforts. We speak in collectivity. We, we do not do individualism. And so we are constantly dancing the fine line between being seen and acknowledged, but also understanding and realizing that we are working in collectives. And so for a long time, being told that, you know, we are a collective, you are not the only one that did this work. And so you must not accept the accolades. Um, It becomes a very interesting dynamic, Um, but it leads to a lot of self-doubt. It leads to a lot of... um, you know, when words like self-care is revolutionary, when that kind of happened, when that arrived into the picture, um, it, 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 all of a sudden we were going back to, oh, wait, we've been doing this work and now it's time to actually start taking better care of oneself and putting yourself first, you know? Um, that was new for many of us in the feminist circles, in the very, in the, in the feminist queer circles to kind of say, oh, wait, I can actually now focus on self. So what I leave behind, the self-doubt, I leave behind the idea that I have to suffer in order to serve, I leave that behind. I am very happy to start taking care of self um, and to focus a lot more on, on my well-being because I've been neglecting that. Mm. And, you know, Dr. Bev, um, in terms of that, when you say that you're leaving the self-doubt behind, you had mentioned um, in other interviews how at some point you had struggled with your mental health and you had had um, bouts of depression. With you celebrating this momentous occasion of your 50th birthday and how you also had mentioned that you are celebrating it because you are so happy to be alive, to still be here. We know that the work of activists is never easy and it's never done. What has kept you going over the years to this day? 
hey, the world is rotten. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, my job as an activist would be redundant if things were changing. You know, if women could walk in the street without being accosted, whether daylight or nighttime, you know, if if queer people were not being murdered left, right and center, babies being raped, if we were if we were living in a just world and a, in a just society, my work would be done. I'd, I'd be a bass player and a film maker making fun films of love and laughter, maybe, you know, but what keeps me going is the fact that there's so much to do. And if, if I can affect even one life, it's a lot because a lot of the time you affect one person and then that person affects many more, you know? So I know for sure that I am not doing this for myself alone. And I, it's very interesting how it, is, it took this year as well and I mean a little bit of the lockdown, to understand that there are people who, who are born to be of service. And we've been kind of shamed as being stupid, silly. And of course, because there's so many people with ulterior motives who are out for financial gain or for fame, using service, you, you know, we've been shamed. We, we've been made to feel like we're silly or stupid for not demanding money for the work that we do or whatever the case. You know, there are people who are born to serve. And what keeps me going is the fact that I realize that I do actually affect lives. I have before and I continue to. And it's not just the amount of people who come to me and say, thank you for being my life. It is in just knowing that the subtle changes around me, I had something to do with it. When I go to any kind of pride, when I go to any kind of queer event, and I see hundreds and hundreds of vibrant, young, queer, beautiful people who seem very free to be themselves, I know I had a little bit to do with that. And, and that, that keeps me going. But more than that is the support and the love from my family, my friends, my partner, just knowing that I am loved and supported so that I can do the work that I do, that keeps me going. Wow. And I love how you say that, um, you know, some people were, were born to serve and having a life of service is just, you know, can sometimes be a person's purpose on this earth. And, Absolutely. That, makes, and that makes me think about uh, the recent launch of the Dr. Bev DC Foundation. Mm-hmm. It will focus mainly on toll-free helplines for queer people in crisis. It will respond to harmful images in the media and also advoca- advocate for better overall representation in the media. Can you describe the kinds of positive imagery that you hope to propagate into the media space and what you aim to achieve overall as you serve South Africa through the Dr. Bev Dietze Foundation? You know, Labuham, have you seen someone like me on your screen, whether the big screen or the small screen? In just mainstream media, whether on radio, do I exist? No, not not in South Africa, especially. Not even on the continent. Mm. Mm. That's exactly it. 
I mean, already that answers your question. Yeah. I do not exist in the media. People like me who look like me do not exist. Um, yes, there's quite a few gay men that are beginning to take prominence all over our screens. Mm-hmm. And, the, I, and on the one hand, I get very excited when I see the amount of gay men that are on, on my screens. I'm, I'm, I mean, this 10 years ago would not have been possible. Um, but then you have to also question patriarchy. You have to question how that is made possible. Also, let's not forget that our queer siblings are also performative. And so our existence is about performing, is about being of kind of other type of services, entertainment, all of that. And I mean, a gender non-conforming lesbian like me does not necessarily um, entertain anyone, right? And so we don't exist on our screens because, you know, even when we are entertainers, the -hmm. fact that, you you know, cis-het men cannot sexualize me or should not sexualize me, they don't know how to deal with that. And so we don't exist. I want to undo that. I want to change that Um, because that already begins the lack of positive images. That already begins it. Um, So... We don't, yeah, um, I, I worry about the fact that when, when there is a queer storyline on my screen, and because I'm a TV maker, I watch a lot of TV. Um, I do consume quite a lot, especially South African television. And you see like a lesbian storyline and the one partner is manipulative and abusive and all they do is drink and beat each other up. Like... Where is a healthy storyline? Where are we as healthy queer couples? We don't exist. So we continue even on the screen when we do exist, there is a kind of a perpetuation of the myth that we are not okay. And I'm sorry, I am thriving. I am in a beautiful relationship with an incredible partner. I'm thriving. Why doesn't that exist on our screens? Yeah. That is so very true. And I mean, um, if this lack of intersectionality in terms of the kinds of representation, if that continues, you end up with a severe lack of role models for young people growing up. And so if we're only seeing problematic things, that allows uh, various other kinds of communities to keep stigmatizing queer people in ways that end up uh, with violence, as we know, in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that is an incredible cause that you're championing because I agree that this positive imagery is is necessary. It's healthy and it's life affirming for many people. Life affirming for me that is key. Mm-hmm. I grew up without any images of myself. Still am in the same space, but at least now I can look at the U.S. and find images and find family and find siblings and they are looking gorgeous and they are thriving. So now we actually have some kind of role models not on our own continent, not in our own languages, but you know what, they're there. And so that makes me happy that, you know, and the fact that sometimes I am on a screen, whether I'm saying this or the other, and that other young people are able to see that, that makes me happy. So, yeah, we we need so much more life-affirming images and we don't have them. But also we don't, I feel like we are not challenging the negative images as much as we should. 
Yeah, I agree. So that's, that's that's also the plan is to is to to be very strong in our challenge and be very articulate and very clear when somebody says, "Yeah, but representation representation does not mean systemic change." We keep doing that. We keep thinking that just because you've got ten more gay people on a screen that something changes. Not if those images are harmful. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and yeah, and some of the bodies that exist in South Africa to kind of challenge what's being put on the media, I think their mandates don't even extend to the matter of, you know, are people being represented in life-affirming ways? I mean, if I think of an organization like the BCCSA, you know, I don't think their mandate covers something like that. And so I do think that it will be very mm-hmm. good for you to um, get into that space and, of course, be super accessible for people to be able to address their concerns and hopefully um, yeah, advocate for the change. Um, so yes. it's not- Dr. Bev, um, so something that is really cool, because you mentioned, um, you, we, we mentioned role models and we mentioned you being able to, you know, see people who look like you. Uh, something very cool happened, which is that you serve as the inspiration for the renowned Boy George's latest song called Rainbow Dark. Hey. And mm-hmm. you have mentioned him as one of the people who inspired you in your youth as well. Um, mm-hmm. so first of all, how does that feel like? Let's start there. <laughs> you should see the smile on my face right now. Every time I like, think about it, when I hear it, when I see George on social media, um, even just when he pops up, like there's a big fat smile on my face. Talk about life coming full circle. Mm. But also talk about serendipity and talk about alignment. Like for me, all of that is about when you really serve your purpose, things come full circle. They really do. Like it's like you've planted seeds way back when you don't know what those seeds were and you circle back and there they are having turned into big, wonderful life affirming, life giving fruit. You know, that's what it feels. That's what that's what that did for me. It kind of said you planted that when you were 13 years old and now you've come back full circle because guess what? He is saying I became his rainbow in the dark. It was a dark time for him Mm. when he came across me who then affirmed him. What? Wow. What? You do, you do understand that there were no words like gay or lesbian when I was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. No one, there was no one who looked like me. And so when I first came across this gorgeous, ethereal-looking man who had makeup on, who was dressing like, oh, my God, he, was, he is gorgeous. And he said, well, I'm gay, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with who I am. I literally broke down because I didn't realize that I actually was one of many, that we were we exist, and that in our existence we are here for a purpose. I I didn't I, I really fell apart. I mean, this is before I ran into the lounge and said, Mom, I'm gay. Um but just finding the words also meant that there was going to be a community so I could walk around saying, where are the other gay people? You know what I mean? And they're like, oh, hey, I'm here. 
I'm here and that's how I found a community. So would I have found me? Would I have found a community without George? Maybe, but maybe much later, but not the way that it happened. Mm. You know, and now, however many years later, he writes, Beverly Ditsy found my rainbow in the dark. Ah! Wow. I mean, even how that happened, like, was was quite crazy because in December, I mean, I hope you don't mind because I, I can't go on. I would love to hear it, please. In, in December of last year, um, I came across, like, I'd never been into these different music accounts, but I started kind of playing around in one account and found, like, Culture Club and Boy George. And I thought, hey, I haven't listened to Culture Club in such a long time. So I plugged in and put on Culture Club, put it up full volume and started crying because I was remembering my childhood. You know, we do that when we get older. (laughs) Um, And so I started, you know, I was like, just I got into my feels. I got very emotional and I tweeted. Oh, my God. I wonder if Boy George will ever know how much he's meant to me over the years. I wonder. Now, I had already said something controversial, so I'd muted people who don't follow me. Uh-huh. So, you know, I did not see any responses to that, and I did, it didn't matter to me. Uh-huh. But an email came in saying, hi, you know, this is me, and I am Boy George's manager. What do you mean? Here's the song. And I went, what? What do you mean? said, Boy George made a song about you in August. Oh, my God. I was like, what? What do you mean? And so I clicked on the link and I shame. You know when you have an ugly cry? But one of those ugly cries that are like, yeah, no, you have not seen an ugly cry until you see me cry listening to that song. And then, of course, I went back online to Twitter and unmuted and found that there's been these responses from all these different people. And Boy George himself says, hey, Bev, yes, I do know. Wow. Uh, <laughs> look, I'm wanting to cry even now. That is such a heartwarming story. I mean, even, I was just looking at him on stage, just explaining. And he says, no, she's a very important person. Okay, I was person. Like, this is incredible, you know, because I've seen interviews where you have mentioned um, that, you know, seeing him be who he was gave you, you know, some 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 light in your wings to be able to be who you are as well. Exactly. So it's incredibly heartwarming. And it's amazing because there was no internet, right? But this has no. been part of your story. There's been no internet. And now we have the internet and it's just blown up in such a beautiful way. So I love that yep. story and I, I love it for you. And I think it's such a beautiful affirmation. You know, it's one of those affirmations that not many people get, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. That you have to done. have someone you idolize in your early teens who saves your life and comes back to you full mm-hmm. circle decades later I shim. it is incomparable to anything I think it's incomparable to the doctorate let me be honest with you yeah, it's, it's, it's so affirming it's like and then of course having chatting with him every once in a while now it's like you know you know somebody says oh yeah no no I was talking to George the other day which George you know boy George what you just chat randomly to boy George like yeah <laughs> magical, magical. Um, so now, yeah. with, with you having this 
in wonderful magical moment um, with one of the icons of your youth, you are now regarded as an elder of the LGBTQIA plus uh, community in South Africa. And who else can you think of that sits at this table of elders with you? So in other words, who are your African peers who also inspire you? Oh, wow. Um, Kasha Jacqueline Gebasi um, in Uganda. Yo, people are fighting out there, hey? Dr. Frank Mugisha, people are fighting out there. Um, it's like Steve Latike from Access Chapter 2 here in, in South Africa. Steve is fighting, hey? Steve works. Uh, Pumim Tetwa, Wendy Isaacs. There's, there's, there's a lot of us that are doing the work. There's a lot of people that do the work. Um, you know, Justice Edwin Cameron, his very existence in like spaces of such high, high stature is like, it's incredible that he's there and he, he, he's continuing to work, you know? Yeah. Um, Reverend Paul Muket, he lives out in Sweden and, and holds ministry for the other African queers who are in Europe, um, for example. There's um, Lady Phil, who is heading UK Black Pride as well as Kaleidoscope International. I mean, I, 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 I am not alone in this space. And it's not just about the fact that they are fighting. It's, it's the fact that they exist in their fullness. Mm -hmm. They exist in their, you know, their absolute purpose. They're doing the work. We, we, we do in our own little corners, in our own little ways, we do the work. There's quite a few of us. Mm. And it's so important to, to hear you say their names and for their names to be recorded um, and for these connections to exist, you know, to know that as we have Dr. Bev Ditsi and as we elevate you as um, an incredible fighter for, the, for our human rights, that we also remember that they are there are others, and there are so many people who are doing the work, as you keep saying. Absolutely. I mean, sorry, Triangle Project in the Cape? Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that, there's work that's being done over there by people like Reverend Sharon and Elspeth Engelbrecht. There's work that's being done over there. Can we not forget Zanella Muholi? Mm -hmm. Sir Zanella Muholi? Sir Zanella Muholi cannot be forgotten in this conversation because that is called shifting mindsets through imagery. That is incredible work. And also putting themselves on the line to be able to do the work. Yes. Incredible. Sorry, I'm just like remembering people's names and there's quite a few. Um, and I know that we won't cover them all, but just so that it is known that I never, I've never ever taken accolades for myself by myself alone and said I've done this by myself. There's always been a collective. Mm. I've always been a part of a collective of people doing the work. Mm. And I and I appreciate that you know um, even in the other interviews that I I've read you know that collectivity that collective it is something that you always emphasize you know that these are this is a community in the truest sense there are people near and far who do the work who believe in humanity you know as it should be without any bigotry without any violence um, mm. i appreciate that you are mm. able to 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 tell us who they are of today course. And growing up, you know, you have mentioned that uh, Boy George was an important inspiration. But back then, did you have any uh, role models from the queer community? And 
did you have a sense besides the the friends that you had you know when you mentioned that you used to gather with your friends and of course besides when you got to glow but in your earliest moments do you recall having role models that you could look up to um they've always been the gay boys and i think my love for the gay men yeah they like i mean i'm not saying that it's over and above my any of my other queer siblings it's just i grew up surrounded by gay men who were just the most incredibly beautiful beings um so the first first gay person that i met after i came out my best friend bula from across the road he passed away last year we were born on the same day at the same time and him being across the road from me meant that we celebrated all our birthdays at you know together every single year and we were supposed to do our 50th together this year um but he's passed on so there was quite a bit of a sad moment but bule bule is one of my first you know and then bule introduced me to tidi ah ah i have never so tidi was for me the black boy george the way he dressed his makeup was impeccable the way he walked down the street in like these long shirts So you know the people in my neighborhood those queer young men I mean before Simon and Cody there was us there was us um and Paul would would say we were nine gay boys and a lesbian walking up and down the streets of Soweto our very first pride marches were that were us walking up and down the streets of Soweto those were my role models because we also faced all kinds of abuse Mm-hmm. you know we were constantly insulted accosted there was constantly threats of violence um but we were just ourselves and they taught me resilience they taught me to fight they taught me to fight back they taught me to be spicy too <laughs> I to learn how to be spicy you know anyway so yeah those were those were my people some of them are still alive today Leslie Paul Cyril Yeah. Oh that's that's lovely. Um whenever you you mention that you would um walk up and down the streets, you know, and people would be a little bit confused, but you absolutely loved that, you know, people didn't know what to expect, didn't know what to think because you were just there in your fullness, in your humanity, just celebrating and loving yourselves um as a collective, you and your friends. Can you tell us more about your upbringing in Soweto and some more of your favorite memories? Um Look, you know when when I started acting and I was constantly given these roles, these boy roles. I was I for the life of me, I could not imagine myself being just ordinary. Even at the age of 9 and 10, I knew that I was different just because I knew somehow that I am a girl but I'm not mm-hmm. and I'm not a boy but I am. and that was there was always something very fascinating to me and being affirmed in that way by by my parents my mom and my grand in particular my grandfather taught me how to how to do a tie and and you know different kind of ties at the Windsor knot and the this knot and i and i remember just kind of sticking to the one that i like and and him trying to show me more you know, that is affirmation yeah 
You know, I was being affirmed even as an eight, nine-year-old, ten-year-old kid. And I think one of my really my favoriteest favoriteest moments is acting in this particular TV drama in 1980, in the depth of apartheid, and arriving on set, feeling like I am myself in the the, the most, I don't know if there is a feeling like that, where I was the happiest. I've only had about three or four of those really happy moments of like absolute abandon in, in happiness. That was the first where I was, I felt like I'm being seen and acknowledged in my fullness. Neither boy nor girl, just me in this acting role. That, that will forever be my, my favorite first memory of joy. Um, and so everything else that happened after that has been me attempting to live to find more of that. Mm-hmm. And of course, society being society, the more I grew, the more I could not be that. Because what is that? Mm-hmm. You know, we found the words much later. Now I can say I am binary. I can say I'm a gender non-conforming lesbian, and I'm holding politically. I'm holding on to she. I'm holding on to lesbian because there's power in 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 being me and identifying the way that I do because I am defiant and I am disruptive of the status quo and I'm very clear and very deliberate with that. But my childhood was really marred by a lot of me fighting to just be me and to live in my joy. So, you know, religion, culture, tradition, being constantly told that a girl does this and not that, that I'm not supposed to like other girls, that, I mean, just a lot of, a girl must, a girl must, a girl must, a girl must. In order, in fazi, I don't subscribe to any of that though. Um, So no, childhood was a mixture of fighting, especially outside, and just, being affirmed at home a lot more of the time. And then, of course, I used the words gay for the first time, and then there was more of a war. Because it's very interesting how in our families we are seen and accepted. And this is across the board from the most, the strictest homes where you find a very effeminate um, man who everybody says sissy, and like they know that they'll find him in the kitchen. They know that he is effeminate. He is the one that will entertain and be spicy until the words gay get used. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, you're evil. Or, Meanwhile, you've actually known this person to be this the entire time. It's a very, very interesting um, dynamic. And so the same thing that happened with me is that I was loved and affirmed until I used the words gay. And then all of a sudden, I'm evil. So gay just got a bad rap. We just need a new PR. <laughs> we need to rebrand. <laughs> and and that's interesting that you say that uh, about those terms. And I find myself agreeing with you. You know, um, I know personally in my own life where. Um, there is someone who everyone will say is different, um, and that's okay because you know um, everyone loves, enjoys, and has a good time with this person, but also loves and supports this person. But then, when particular phrases get used or when uh, visitors come, you know, 
things change and it's, it's it is quite a bizarre thing but speaking like these, these phrases and these terms you know in the past it was just lgbt for lesbian gay bisexual and transgender and now it has expanded it has become you know lgbtqia 2s plus you know uh, in some sectors you know with the addition of queer intersex asexual two spirits plus um did you ever imagine that this level of inclusivity could happen and what are some of the wins that are close to your heart and how do you feel about the constant um the, the inclusivity and the expansion how does that feel to you I had an argument with another radio journalist who kept saying why do we have to add so many acronyms mm-hmm. you know why do you have to what, what is this why can't we just stop and my answer was in order to make whom comfortable mm-hmm. yeah you know like who does it serve i always that's i always ask that question who does it serve for us to to change yeah. who does it serve because to be honest with you I think I said it and I and alluded to this before. As much as I identify as a lesbian, which is a woman who loves and adores other women, I have always in terms of that is a sexual orientation. In terms of gender identity, people would then say, "Oh, you just want to be a man, you try to be a man," but actually never. I knew I wasn't a girl, but I knew I wasn't a boy. So what was that? Now I have the language. Mm-hmm. you know yeah. and i had to i had to find myself inside the acronyms and say okay so i know i'm not trans because had i been trans i would have transitioned by now and so i am nonconforming because i've never really conformed to gender norms in society i i just never have that's why i could play boy roles when i was a child mm-hmm. you know and so having having a way to find yourself you know whether it's you're polyamorous and you understand what that means <laughs> you know um finding and having intersex friends and 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 them talking about their own experiences of finding themselves in the space because they were also a medical anomaly you know we all find ourselves in this rainbow and finding yourself affirms you finding yourself you know gives you a sense of belonging yes and and sometimes that's all we want is to to belong somewhere where we know we are accepted and loved as who we are so really really it is for me a most incredible thing that there are there is such a wide variety because also humanity is wide yes the fact that we've been locked into these binaries where there's only black and white where there's only gay or lesbian where there's only um or sorry gay or straight <laughs> where there's only you know man or woman where there's only this or that those are all constructs and constructs are created for control mm-hmm. you are better able to control the people when you put them in boxes so that then you can label and mark them and then move on and so we are breaking out of those boxes these constructs are now just illusions and we are all aware of them and when i say all i mean even those who pretend to not be aware of the constructs are aware of the constructs they might be fighting because the constructs benefit them but they are aware that all of it is a construct and so 
in breaking out of the constructs, I find that we are freeing ourselves more and more. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, that just that just gives me joy. It doesn't matter how many. Yes, call us the alphabet gang. We will continue to be alphabet, but you belong somewhere in the alphabet too. So, mm. you know, what's the problem again? Exactly, and you know, there's only. It, it can only be a joyous and wonderful thing to know that people are finding language for themselves and are finding a place of belonging. And Absolutely. it does not make sense to want to deprive people of that, to keep people in a space of mm-hmm. uh, not knowing, not understanding themselves, to keep knowledge and resources away from them. Uh, mm-hmm. It's incredibly evil and oppressive to want to continue that, that way. And that's exactly. I absolutely love, you know, what social media and the internet has done for South Africans and Africa at wide at, at large because we mm-hmm. have more knowledge, more visibility and representation that is accompanied with uh with with resources, with understanding, with questioning. And that mm-hmm. can make it better for everyone's humanity to be elevated and seen, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so, Dr. Bev, um, as one of the organizers of the first Pride March in South Africa, I'd like to ask if you still attend the Pride, Pride Marches, would you say that you, they have evolved? And do you think that Pride as it is, is still an effective movement for addressing the concerns of queer people in the country? No, unfortunately, Pride is so commercial and has been so commercialized um, that pride is now something completely different to where it began and, and what it meant and what it is. And I think very interestingly, this this evolution of pride is recognized worldwide. Um, I see T-shirts even coming from the U.S. that says, please remember, pride was a riot. Mm. Pride was a riot. Pride was a riot against an oppressive system and oppressive police force that was out in different places of brutalizing queer people. And those queer people were not just gay white men, contrary to popular belief. Pride as a movement was begun by black, brown, trans people. There were lesbians. You know, there were gender non-conforming people in the space. It was a riot. It wasn't beers in the hand, laughing and enjoying music. It was a riot. People were put in vans, in the back of vans, thrown into jail and beaten. That's pride. That's the meaning. That's where pride comes from. Mm -hmm. And then you look in contrast to what pride is today. When people have to pay to get into pride, it's no longer pride. It's, it's It's a party. It's something else. But pride has always been about protest. Yes, it's about also celebrating the fact that we are alive and and celebrating ourselves and and sh- and showing up in the world and being visible. That's where pride began for me. Anyway, it was about saying enough with being shamed, enough with closets, enough with being made to feel like we should not exist, mm-hmm. that we do not exist unless we exist either for entertainment or to be sexually abused in private. Because that's who we were for the longest time. Deriled, we were the brunt of jokes. Anyone can come and make a gay joke and we must all laugh because it's funny. Pride was about saying we are full 3D 
human beings. Mm. It was a protest. It was a riot. And where are we now? So I can't attend pride. I can't attend something that is so far gone from, from who I am, from where I began. I, I, I can't do it. It's too heartbreaking. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, every time I get asked about pride, do you want to say something about pride, really? My response is, I think I've said absolutely everything I've ever needed to say on the subject. Because yeah. I, I really have... I have said, I have, I have, I have spoken. Um, I did an open letter two years ago where I was like, for anyone who wants to understand why I say the things that I say here, that explains it. These three pages should help you understand where we began and why, and to help you understand why I can't subscribe to any of the, the nonsense now. It's nonsense. A lot of it is nonsense. I understand and I, I appreciate your willingness to go into it again for our listeners. Um, and I can only imagine what it is like to begin a movement when you are so young and, you know, dedicated to the humanity of people being seen and for that to completely be transformed in your lifetime as one of the founding people. I can only imagine what that must feel like, um, Dr. Bev. Um, and speaking of... Um, you know, uh, queer people and, and the human rights of queer people as they stand today. The institution of the South African Constitution in 1996 was a hopeful moment for you with a president who understood uh, LGBTQI plus rights as human rights. So what are your feelings on the legacy and the current state of South African political and legislative engagement with the issues affecting queer people? Look, I think right now we're engaging the hate crimes bill and um, it's intricate in the why it's taken so long. I know it had something to do with a constitutional court ruling on this journalist who, who was very homophobic. And now that that ruling has come back to say that he, you know, it was hate speech for him to say gay is not okay. Um now we have moved on, and, and I think that there's like work that's being done on the hate crimes bill. But to be honest with you, um, we are in a very painful place in South Africa in general. And so we, I, I don't think that we can address just the queer issues without addressing the deeper systemic issues that exist. And and I'll give you an example and try to be as short as possible. There was this one township where we were finding out that every week a gay man or a lesbian or a non-conforming or a trans person was being brutalized and killed, raped. And this just this one township. So a group of us decided to go and see what was going on in that place. And you have to cross a marshland for about five kilometers before you get to that particular township. And when we arrived there, we found that one, there was no network. And so our phones, the connectivity was poor because I wanted to call home and say, you know, hi, yo, we are in this place. And I couldn't. Um, we found that the lights... The street lights don't work. Mm -hmm. We found that 
municipality does not really come to get garbage from this place. Ambulances do not arrive in this place. The police do not come in this place. And so, you know, while we were walking around in the Saturday afternoon, there were big groups of young men playing dice. The younger ones were playing soccer. The older ones were drinking beer. When you ask where are the girls, where are the women, well, they are safer in their yards. They rarely go out because if they do, they get accosted. And nobody does anything. But yeah, even the young men were saying, well, look, we are abandoned over here. Not even our government sees us as existing in this space. And so you tell me, how then do we go around addressing queer issues mm-hmm. when there's so much else that's going on in the space? Mm-hmm. I walked away feeling lost because all I could think is, okay, if there are any queer people in the space, could you leave? But then do I then ask the women and the girls in the space to also leave? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so we have huge systemic issues in the country that are well beyond just the queer issue. Mm-hmm. Stuff needs to be addressed. This government needs to work and they're not. Yeah. They're not. And so there's a lot to address. For us as a queer community, the only thing is to try and use the law as much as possible, as difficult as that is, mm-hmm. because the police themselves keep dropping cases. They don't care. Yeah. We have huge issues in this country. And I mean, we are intersectional. I am an intersectional being. I cannot just focus on the one part of myself and say, I'm going to fight for this part of myself. I'm also a black woman in this space. Yeah. That is, that, that what you just shared now is, is so disappointing and it really just, um, it sinks my heart, you know. Yeah. Um, many, that is a story of many places in South Africa, many yes. villages, uh, there's no water, there's no electricity, mm-hmm. there's a lawlessness that is just mm-hmm. allowed to flourish with reckless mm-hmm. abandon. Uh, young men are, are terrorizing, you know, entire communities and it's mm-hmm. it is. Um, and the, the tragedy of it all is that, of course, the hegemony has organized a hierarchy of humanity and who matters most and so we know who ends up being the most brutalized and yep. voice is heard the least and yep. that's incredibly heartbreaking i don't even yeah. have words um <sighs> yeah well i mean sorry about that the idea was not to um dampen the spirit but i think the reality is that we are intersectional and there's so many more issues yeah. um there's still joy. People still live. We, we've been living even under apartheid. It was the same and we were still living and, you know, we continue to find joy in what do they say? Even the flower sometimes breaks through the concrete. Mm-hmm. So as an activist, you have to like live in the hope, right? Yes. I mean, think about it. Like, we would not, we would not be who we are if we did not believe somewhere, somehow that change is possible. That is true. Otherwise, I, 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 would, I would be hitting my head against a brick wall. I would not do this. Yeah. But I do believe change is possible. I have seen change in my own lifetime. 
seeing us go from the oppression of apartheid to something new, seeing us have ourselves as in the constitution of our own country, mm-hmm. finding myself living in a nice spot, being safe behind my walls. For me, there's a lot of change that I have seen in my own lifetime, and I know I've contributed to some of this change, and so I believe that even bigger change is possible. It just means that there's still a lot of work to be done. Yes. Yes, and we should all just put the shoulder to the wheel and keep trudging and keep trying. Um, Dr. Bev, if we could move towards, you know, a more hopeful note, as you, you just mentioned that there is still hope. You're someone who has been engaged in the arts, in the film industry, television industry for a very long time. How do you see uh, your future panning out in these spaces, especially? What are you hoping for? Um, I've got so many things that I was, I still want to do. There's films to be made. You all have There's still so many films to be made, mm-hmm. and I know that you're going to be part of the team in one of them <laughs> because there has to be. We have to work together, right? There's so much that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, I have. I. I. I'm, I have kind of stepped away from television. Um, I started finding that we are becoming more and more and more and more mediocre in our, I think just reality TV and TV is really just becoming more frivolous and it's moving further and further away from my purpose um, and no longer aligning with who I am and what I want to do. So um, I've moved further now and deeper into documentary which kind of means that, you know, the film, I have a film on my mom that's coming up. Um, she was a, an amazing superstar singer in the 50s, in the 60s and 70s. And her story is unknown. And it breaks my heart to see her every day, knowing that, you know, she is also unacknowledged when she was, she was huge in this country at one point, but apartheid being apartheid knows how to erase people. And so she, she's been erased, but I'm going to make sure that her name comes up. So I'm working on, on the film on mom. Um, I'm working on the film on, I don't know if you know the term Jack Roll. I have heard of it. Apparently it was a notorious form of crime in the eighties where girls and women were being abducted and gang raped sometimes for two weeks at a time and then thrown back into their own street when the boys were done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, that story, I I really honestly believe that we will not address GBV in its entirety, this thing called GBV, whatever the hell that is. We will not address it until we start talking about things like Jack Roll, because that happened over three years where we were terrorized. We were terrorized. I could not walk out into the street without thinking a car's going to come sweep me up and I'll be gone. And that happened over three years maybe a little bit more. And nobody talks about it. Nobody. It was in no newspaper. It's almost as though it did not exist. Talk about gaslighting. Mm. It did not exist, not even in the papers. And when it did exist, it was just supposedly some cadres who came from the camps who were disgruntled because they came ready for war and then there was no war, so they were taking it out on the women and girls. But it wasn't just the cadres, it was everybody. It was my neighbors, it was my people who were my friends who were part of these gangs. Yeah. 
how do we how do we address this in our country if we don't dig deeper and go into where the wound actually started mm. so there's that film to be made there's like women warrior series that i'm working on there's like there's a there's a few films that are coming up that um i'm going to you know make sure that are out there um queer women in our history that continue to be erased because i'm no longer interested in his story as well right yeah. i do not do his story his story has become so boring for me his story is about conquest his story is about war and winning and is constantly fighting his story is the most boring story in the damn world where's her story where's their story that's the story i'm making that's the story i want to see for myself and for everyone else So that's my focus, her story, their story. That is beautiful, Dr. Bev, and we look forward to being able to see the films that you put out there, some with very painful histories, uh, some that will hopefully get us to introspect, to understand mm. our, our histories and lineages of violence as well and where they are taking us to. Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to really look into ourselves and somewhere, somehow find some kind of healing. Um, so we really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for this conversation and just opening yourself up to these questions. We really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you. You know, Lokhan, I'm a big fan of yours. Oh, wow, that's so cool. Thank you. I'm such a big fan of yours. I'm a big fan of your work. I, I, I follow and I listen and I'm there. So I'm a big fan of you, fam. So the honor is all mine. Wow, I'm like deeply honored. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bev. Sure. Okay, so... Now we're back with Dr. Bev Ditsi, and we'll be asking her a few questions in our African Women in Dialogue quiz. So, Dr. Bev, what gives you joy? Love gives me joy. Laughter gives me joy. That's what gives me joy. I love laughing and being with the people I love. I'm, I have a small, small, small inner circle of friends and family. And when I see them laughing, and we, that gives me joy. Amazing. And what is love to you? And what does love look like in your life today? Love shows up. Love, love shows up. Love has no conditions. Love does not choose. Love is just love. Um, and, and for me, the love I get to experience that is so unconditional. I'm constantly awed. And because I'm experiencing it from the people I love, I make sure I return it. And it's a constant cycle. See, people think that you love gets depleted. That's, you, you, that's not true. The more love you give, the more love there is. That's the thing about love never gets depleted. Mm. And can you please tell us, can you complete the sentence, feminism to me is? The end to patriarchy and all its manifestations. Mm. 
And can you tell us what are the two things that you do to treat yourself? What does self-care look like to you? Self-care means time out for me. Self-care is having the ability to close my door for a day, two days, sometimes more, and just close my door. And whether that means I'm playing music or listening to music or sleeping or watching movies nonstop or going for a massage, self-care for me is having the time to replenish. I give a lot. I give a lot of energy. With all my interactions, I give 100% of me. That normally means I need the time to replenish. And a lot of the time, the replenishing is just by closing my door and having the ability and the time to pray, to meditate, and to just replenish. Thank you, Dr. Bev. Thank you. Well, I mean, you know, I was about to say making love also helps. That is a great one. Absolutely. I mean, it is part of self-care, right? It is. It is. And it is the part of like a, a communion as well. Yes. Yes. You're communing with the one you love. So, yeah. Dr. Bev, one more question that I'm realizing I somehow skipped over. Okay. Please may we go to it. Okay. Okay, so you were the first person to address the United Nations about taking seriously the realities of members of the LGBT community and the protection of human rights at the Beijing Women's Conference in 1995. Mm -hmm. When you look back at it, what did this moment mean to you? And are there any items from the Platform for Action that you still want to see realized in your lifetime? <clears throat> this moment was you know, look first of all I didn't even know how big a moment it was until after the fact um, and that's because you know at, like I say I never go into things thinking about what they mean on a bigger kind of scale I just do what I know needs to be done and so when a group of us got together and we found out that we had five minutes to address the United Nations and the question was who was going to do it, I kind of, I, I would say naively, but not so naively, said me. And why naively is because I didn't realize the magnitude of it, but not naive because also having just come from a country where our own president said something about sexual orientation we just come from apartheid into kind of democracy, and I put that in inverted commas. Um, and I was of African descent, coming from the continent, being African. It made sense that it would be me, because otherwise it would have been a North American um, or a Brit, or you know what I mean? Yeah. So it made sense that it would be me. Um, the magnitude of it only occurred to me after the speech. It was incredible to then realize that I, I was first to address that level of the United Nations, that being others who, are, who have addressed the, the NGO forum and other platforms of the United Nations. But I was first to address that particular government forum. 
um, in all the years. And so, so it was, it was actually quite incredible. It, it made me feel like my life's purpose continues to align with everything that I do. It really did. It's, it's another one of those, you know, I am in alignment. That's what it felt like to me. And, and, and what I'd like to see out of the platform for action, hi, everything, hey, <laughs> everything. Look, look if, you, if you look at where we are in the world right now, you have a lot of countries that have claimed autonomy of their own kind of constitutions and of their own laws, particularly the countries that are deeply religious yeah. or that are dictatorships, that type of thing, who really do not subscribe to any of the resolutions that have come out of bodies like the United Nations or the African Union. And so because they claim this autonomy, as far as they're concerned, they are not necessarily bound to align or to subscribe to any of the resolutions that have come out. What that means is that female genital mutilation, for example, continues in Chad and in other places, including places like Kenya, where you would think that, you know, they don't. Um, it just means that termination of pregnancy is still illegal. Even in places like the United States, that's insane. Yeah. You know, it still means that body, bodily autonomy for women and girls does not exist in a big percentage of the world, which then means everything that was in that platform for action still needs addressing. Actually, that's why I said everything. Yeah. And yes, we can, we can pick places and clauses and things, you know, but that's mostly for me anyway. Privileged countries can kind of say something different. But generally speaking, as soon as patriarchy falls and women have full autonomy over themselves and their bodies, only then really can we say that we have achieved anything. For me, we will not achieve anything until patriarchy is actually gotten rid of. Yeah, I hear you, Dr. Bev. That is so true because it is insidious and it is violent and it just mm-hmm. in the most unexpected ways in our mm. lives so yeah if we could just go to the head of the monster once and for all once and for all chop off that head yeah it will really solve so many of the mm. issues that people are having. um thank you so much dr bev once again for your time uh dr bev ditsi who is uh, a fighter whose fire is clearly born out of love and a desire to see all of humanity being celebrated to see people loving and living in all of their fullness thank you so much for the contributions that you have given us today but of course the contributions that you've given over your lifetime we look forward to seeing what you are going to do next and to be able to also make our own contributions to the work that you continue to do thank you so much thank you i really appreciate this time and this moment and i am i am appreciative of you and the work that you do so thank you very much Thank you, Dr. Bevdizi, and we're wishing you a fantastic day further. Thank you so much, and you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. African Women in Dialogue is a podcast that was created and brought to you by the Zanelembeki Development Trust. My story in my voice. Thank you for listening.
Be sure to follow our social media for updates. We'll connect again soon.